All right. Well, let's get started for the uh, February 9th, 2016 incarnation of Golden Beer Talks. And is it, is it on? Is it working? Okay. All right. And so uh, the featured beer tonight is from Cannonball Creek Brewery up at the north end of Washington Street, 393 North Washington, where uh, Jonathan, their brewmaster, he says, well, 7%'s the new 5%. <laughs> So they, they, they tend to have yeah tend to have stronger beer there. And so tonight we've got their featherweight pale ale, for which they have won awards in 2013, 2014, and 2015. It's a nice American-style pale ale that's dry hopped, so that gives it that hoppy aroma, but it doesn't give it a lot of the bitterness. Um, and then we've got their Brickyard Porter, which is a 6.4% ABV, which seems to be a bit high for a porter or a stout from my perspective. Um, but it's a nice, robust porter, and this full-bodied dark ale features flavors of coffee, chocolate, balanced by a subtle English hop addition. And I was trying this beer out, and I thought, that was really a good beer. And so uh, I hope you're all enjoying it. And um, Cannonball Creek is, what, just had its three-year anniversary up there. So um, it was one of the f- first ones that opened up after Golden City Brewery in 93, in terms of the craft breweries. Uh, so in terms of beer trivia, so uh, we were there at the uh, ribbon cutting for Holidayly Brewing, the new gluten-free brewery, and um, uh, I wound up next to their consultant that helped set up their lines and everything. It was all very orderly, very nice, workmanlike, etc. And um, he started sharing trivia, and uh, I once described how my father, who was born in 1907, so we're talking the 19-teens here. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, they'd, they'd both be pretty old by now. But he used to, one of his jobs in Cicero, Illinois, when his father came home from work was my father was supposed to go to the bar, and, you know, they had a little vestibule, like, inside the bat wing doors, and at the short end of the bar was the window, and that little vestibule was where the women and the children could go at the time, and that's all it was appropriate, you know, for the women. They didn't go in the bar. And every night he went and got two buckets of beer for his father and carried them home. And he described this to me, and, you know, and I bought a growler at Holidayly Brewing, you know, nicely, uh, uh, tar- or not targeted, but um, branded with all of the Holidayly stuff, right? And this guy says, now, do you know where it got it, the name growler? And I said, no, tell me where, where that came from. And he said, well, they used to give beer out in buckets, but they were like a tin bucket with a tin lid, which is not part of the picture. My father had never given me these details, you know, because, of course, he knew what the buckets looked like, but I was too young to ever ask. And they had lids on them. And he said when people would carry them around, and, of course, the beer's got CO2 in it and it's coming off, that the lids would kind of pop up and make sort of a growling sound. So they got the name Growlers, he said. And I thought, That's, this sounds like an apocryphal story. But, hey, Wikipedia confirms exactly his, his story that that's where growlers got their name. So just our half-gallon growlers could be from these uh, uh, tin pails that were used for buckets of beer. And with that, I'll introduce Whitney, who's got a few other of our announcements. That's your beer trivia for the month. Ladies and gentlemen, our beer ambassador, Frank Blaha. Mm. Yeah, he takes his job very seriously, and I admire him for it, for sure. (laughs) Tough job. 
Absolutely tough job. A few quick things. We like to begin and end with gratitude, so we want to express our gratitude very much to the staff here at the Windy Saddle for the awesome grub and the great service. They always do us right. Yeah. At the end of the night, if you happen to find someone's empty dishes in front of you and you want to throw them in the direction of those bins, that would be awesome. And we also want to thank Golden.com because they always promote our events and they're really awesome. And if you haven't been to the Golden.com website, you should do that because you can learn about all kinds of cool stuff going on around town and places to be and be seen. Uh, we also have some Golden Beer Talks Growlers for sale. They come in a set of four for 20 bucks, or you can buy them individually. What did I call them? Growlers. Growlers. No, they're just glasses. That would be weird. They're buckets. They're actually buckets. <laughs> we're going old style bucket. Uh, but in the meantime, while we're waiting for the buckets to arrive, we're trying to sell these beer pints. So um, four of them for 20 bucks. And also, you probably noticed it's Fat Tuesday. So there are some large, sumptuous, delicious looking Fat Tuesday cupcakes up here, $3 a piece. If you're interested or you're going to go home to someone who might have missed the evening, they might like that. It's very beautiful and very festive. And one other quick note, Greg Reed, who helps us out by supplying us with this amazing sound equipment, is also an incredible musician and plays here regularly. He happens to be playing here in the saddle on the 11th of March. Don't miss it and come early. With that, I'm going to bring our ambassador back up to introduce our speaker. All right. Well, and thank you all for coming. You know, uh, we wouldn't be doing these if people didn't come to these talks. And we have quite a variety of speakers. And, you know, sometimes we're jam-packed and other times not so much. But it's great having people come because uh, we, we, you know, we spend time trying to consider, you know, who should we have come talk? Is this, would this be a good talk? Would it be well-received? Would people come? So thank you very much for coming. And tonight we have for your pleasure uh, Darren Beck who's a professional hydrologist and the Director of Water Resources for the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program. And, um, I'm sorry? And he's doing this on behalf of the Headwaters Corporation. He's had 12 years of water resources engineering, hydrologic analyses, water resources planning and management, river surveying, and project management. And um, uh, this is over a year coming because it was a year ago in January that I went to the Colorado Water Congress, you know, which is an annual meeting, and there were uh, you know, some information booths and probably maybe that very uh, tabletop display was there. And there was another gentleman there, and I started talking to him, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm in the water business, and I had no idea that this was going on, this Platte River Recovery Program and blah, blah, blah. And I got his card, and then a few months later I thought, hey, maybe, maybe that would be a good Golden Beer Talks. Um, and I guess I didn't pay attention because I simply emailed the guy and, you know, started corresponding. And he's like, well, I actually live in Kearney. You know, I'm, I'm in Kearney, but we do have an office there in Denver, so one of my colleagues can come speak on the Platte River Recovery Program. And um, Darren Beck will do just that. Thank you very much, and enjoy the talk. Thought maybe you'd better of that, you know. So, thank you for having me. Um, thank you, Frank, and thank you for um, the dinner and the beer and everything. And like I said, 
Frank stole my first line, so I, I got to completely rewrite or rethink what I was just about to say. But I am, uh, my name is Darren Beck. I am the Director of Water Resources for Headwaters Corporation. Um, just to give some distinction between Headwaters Corporation and the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program, we, are, we take direction from the program participants and we do the work, we report results back to the program participants, we give recommendations, and we then go back and do more work. So we're separate from the Platte River program itself, but we are the managers and operators of the program. Um, let's see, let me get rid of some of this stuff. Can I put this here? Pretty pictures. So I'd like to discuss with you quickly just an overview of the program itself, um, how the program was started, who's involved, where the program's located, and what exactly the program is. I call it the program because if I said Platter Recovery Implementation Program every time, I would be completely tongue-twisted, so I'll leave it at the program. Um, a couple of terms of note, just I'm sure a lot of you are familiar, an acre foot and a CFS, I'll be saying that a lot. An acre foot is a, ve is a measurement of the volume of water and it covers, it's the water required to cover one acre, uh, one foot deep in water. And a football field without the end zones is about an acre. So as a point of reference, Lake Dillon in Summit County is, when full, is about 250,000 acre feet. Uh, also, CFS is a measure of flowing water, and uh, it's uh, cubic feet per second. And Clear Creek right now is running less than 100 CFS, and during spring, peak spring runoff, it could run anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 CFS. So, again, just a sense of what some of the numbers are that I'll, I'll be t discussing today. So, um, if you have questions, feel free to ask or wait for the break, however you guys tend to do it, but uh, feel free. Um, the Platte River program, the overall goal of the program is to create, restore, and maintain critical habitat for threatened and endangered species in central Nebraska on the Platte River. My, my pretty map here, I'll get, I'll get to this in a little bit, but my one, well I guess I have this um, poster board back here, but this is all I've got. Uh, additional goals. Um, include improving and maintaining whooping, crat, whooping crane habitat, also um, in, improving habitat for nesting and reproductive areas for interior lease turns and piping plovers. Um, the program also, one of the goals is to improve uh, habitat for pallid sturgeon more downstream towards the confluence with the Missouri. In addition to those goals, uh, another goal is to reduce the likelihood of future of listing of future species on the Endangered Species Act as well. <clears throat> a couple of, brought a couple of pictures. I'll, I'll leave these up here. It's kind of odd for me to talk into a microphone, but hopefully I'll do okay. Thanks. Um, the whooping crane, North America's tallest bird. There are currently only three to four hundred um, in their population, and uh, they were listed on the endangered species list in 1967. 
Absolutely, yeah. It's made a really a big comeback, and uh, I won't take all the credit for it, but I'll take some. <laughs> well, it's really one of, those, one of those majestic species that I think receives a lot of attention and therefore protection. The uh, interior least tern, this little guy here, and uh, he was listed on the endangered species list in 1985, and their estimated population is at about 18,000 birds. This guy is the piping plover, and I know it's maybe difficult for everybody to see, but I'll leave him up here, and everybody can. Well, you can you can pass. Yep, absolutely. So this guy is uh, what did I say? Uh, he's on the threatened species list, and he was listed in 1986. And there's about 19,000 in their, or, I'm sorry, 9,000 in their population. And then there's the black sheep of the group, the uh, pallid sturgeon. If he was a bird, he'd be an ugly duckling. But he uh, was listed on the endangered species list in, on 19, in 1990. And I'll pass these around. Um, all of those are located in this green area. Okay. And the pallid sturgeon is lo more located downstream towards the confluence with the Missouri River. So I'll kind of get into what that green area is in contrast with what the habitat for the pallid sturgeon is as well. But that, that, green, area, that green area is the major flyway for sandhill cranes and whooping cranes as well, um, known as the Big Bend Reach in, in Nebraska. So um, I can talk about this uh, for a second. I'll get back to um, who was involved. The I'm going to take this. I'm going to rock the mic for a second. <laughs> can I do this? Did anybody watch the uh, parade and all the rally stuff today? Yeah. A couple of awkward moments when, with microphones, but I'll try not to do that. Uh, okay, so this green area here is the what we call associated habitat reach. So that is where the Platte River program is doing all of its on-the-ground work. It's about 90 miles from Lexington, Nebraska to Chapman, and um, that is where, like I said, we're doing on-the-ground work. So we are manipulating the river, redu uh, uh, removing vegetation. We are creating wetlands, wet meadows, all the things that we're trying to do to reestablish critical habitat for the endangered species. More, more downstream, like I said, is the confluence with the Missouri River. That is the habitat of the pallid sturgeon. Moving upstream again, the confluence of the North Platte and the South Platte is here in Platte, Nebraska. On the North Platte Basin lies, this is um, Lake McConaughey on the North Platte River. It's a 1.7 million acre foot storage facility operated by the Central Nebraska Public Power and Irrigation District. And that is water releases, water stored and released from that reservoir as part of the program first, first increment objectives, which I'll talk about. Further upstream on the North Platte is the uh, Pathfinder Reservoir located in Wyoming here. And in Colorado, our contribution to water for the program is located about here at a state wildlife area called Tamarack One Project. It's a recharge project. So that just a, a sense of where things are. I always need to 
um, look at things in order to learn. I'm a visual type learner, so if you've got questions again about where things are in relation to others, um, please feel free, feel, feel free to ask. So, origin North Platte is close to what? The origin of the North Platte? Yeah. Well, I believe it's up in North Park, Colorado. North Park? Yeah. Yeah, near Walden, I believe. Yeah, yeah this is Jackson County, so. Yeah, yeah. The program participants are kind of shown here in terms of the states. So we've got Colorado, Wyoming, and Nebraska. Other participants include the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. There are also water user groups within each of the three states, as well as uh, environmental groups and local, local stakeholders as well. Landowners are involved to some point. Key elements of the project include increasing stream flow through the associated habitat reach, that, that uh, green area, as well as restoring uh, and protecting habitat lands and accommodating new water-related activities so that the program isn't inhibiting water development in the Platte Basin. Uh, other key elements include ESA compliance, so um, this allows new and existing projects to use um, the Platte River Program for Compliance for Endangered Species Act, um, requirements that they're fulfilled to, um, to undertake, as well as um, we, the three states and the federal government also develops uh, depletion plans, which allow for uh, development to continue throughout the basin. So we, the, the states will provide water so that it doesn't impact the flows, the increased flows that we're trying to, to get at in the, in the associated habitat reach. The program was initiated in 1997. And um, in 2006, after only nine years of negotiations, we finally had a, a program document, which was the framework of how the implementation program would work, who's involved, and who's responsible for what. The first increment of the program runs from 2007 through 2019. So the objectives and goals that I'll discuss tonight are first increment goals. Past 2019, goals still need to be identified and worked out. Now how the program came to be. The Platte River, as I'm sure everybody knows, rivers these days aren't what they used to be. <laughs> so the Platte River, especially in Nebraska, um, I was really, I think, unaware because the last time I drove through Nebraska before I started working with Headwaters was 20 years ago or something, and even then I wasn't necessarily looking at the river with all that beautiful corn to look at. Um, but the Platte River used to be historically before development pre-1880, early 1900s, a very wide, shallow river, uh, braided channel with um, high sediment loads. Yep, it just meandered and, uh, and really free of vegetation, ideal habitat for roosting cranes, whooping cranes, and as well as the piping plover and, and least turn that needs sand for um, reproduction and nesting. So, um, in a long came man, early 1900s, dams, reservoirs, irrigation diversions, uh, eventually diversions for, pi for power and municipal use as well. So, um, typically what's happening there is 
um, reservoirs will retime the flow. So those high peak flows that you'll have in a snowmelt-driven uh, um, hydro hydrologic basin are no longer. So storage instead, and maybe some flows later in the season that are typically higher than what may have been. So really uh, changing the hydrology of the, of the river based on those um, impounding water reservoirs and dams. In addition to that, they're impounding sediment. As I said, this stream system is dependent upon a high sediment load to move through it, to create those sandbars, to create meanders, scour vegetation in order to create habitat. Well, not in order to create habitat, that's what the river does, but you know, as, a, as an aside, it's creating habitat. So um, that is what's been happening with dams and reservoirs. Irrigation ditches came along, and they plunked a, a, a diversion ac across the entire river, and next thing you know is it's not a river downstream of that diversion. It's just sand. So they're diverting the entire amount of the river, which at times could be you know, 20,000 CFS in places, and they're diverting water. That's, okay, that's, that's flood water typically uh, that much, but... Um, but it, the point is, is that they're diverting the entire flow of the of the river, no longer making it a river, and um, so that, in, in effect, also has changed the hydrology and the channel morphology. What the what that has done is created a very singular channel, which has downcut as a as a result of of reduction in sediment flow. There's clear water that leaves the reservoir. It's able to pick up sediment, and it's doing that through cutting of the, of the stream channel in the, in the Thalweg or the lowest part of the, of the, of the channel. So um, that wide meandering channel, very shallow, very wide, is, is now um, a very narrow, deep channel. And vegetation is now able to grow within the, the historic river channel, the, the high banks. So there's forests that, are, that now exist in, in the Central Platte River that um, further restrict that channel from wanting to meander. So it's, uh, it's kind of a twofold problem, and that's one of the um, milestones that we're looking at is trying to figure out how we can make those changes. Um, so that's um, essentially what has happened as far as hydrologically to the, to the system. Uh, as... Um, there are threatened and endangered species that have been identified, as I said earlier, back from the 60s. Um, the operators of Lake McConaughey in the early 1990s looked to expand Kingsley Reservoir, which impounds Lake, Lake McConaughey, to increase the storage capacity. Yeah, Lake McConaughey. Yeah. On the weekends, I'm told you could just follow all the lines of boats leaving Colorado and get right to Lake McConaughey. Um, so um, Fish and Wildlife Service, as part of that process to enlarge the dam, Fish and Wildlife Service came in and, and um, did a report, a biological opinion, which is a report on uh, potential impacts to threatened and endangered species downstream as a result of the expansion of the reservoir. Um, they did find in that report that, yes, if you store additional water, that reservoir, in addition to others, because it's a, it's a large system of reservoirs that the power company has, would impact the threatened and endangered species critical habitat. So um, 
now there's a problem. You know, there's there's development that needs to happen. There's there's water supply projects that are already kind of, you know, either moving forward with or have been um, put in the coffers. So it's something that uh, the states of Wyoming, Colorado, and Nebraska, the Department of Interior sat down and said, look, we got to figure out a way to um, work within the Endangered Species Act regulations at the same time um, further develop water supplies in the area. It's it's the nature of the beast that's going to happen. So, um, and, and I'm glad it happened like it did because it brought about the program. It, it was a collaborative effort between the three states um, as well as the Department of Interior to sit down and really hash through how can we, with limited water resources, limited money, and um, all, with everyone with having good intentions in terms of um, providing um, flows and reducing risks to those uh, threatened endangered species. How can we sit down and, and work through this? So they thought rather than you know working looking at it individually at, at different species and uh, different projects to recover different species in different areas, let's look at it as a whole, as a system uh, that works together and. The, the, and that's what happened in 1997. So they came up with an, a, cooper, a cooperative agreement that said, "Okay, let's start. To, let's start the process. How would we go about doing this?" And finally, in 2006, they had a working document called the, the program document. Very original, <laughs> but it um, that laid the framework for how they were going to start the process of recovery of the threatened endangered species reduce the likelihood of listing additional species and at the same time be able to responsibly develop water resources and and developments within the within the basin um, through that program document there was a the governance committee that was formed this is formed this included representatives from each of the um, stakeholders in the program. So you've got representatives from the states of Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, Bureau of Rec, Fish and Wildlife, other user groups, environmental groups as well that all have a seat at the table so that there isn't, you know, any one agency or um, state that's really you know, having individual interest in what's happening. It's, very, it's a very collaborative um, way to sit down and get everybody at the table. Underneath the governance committee, there are individual water, um, I'm sorry, advisory committees. And these are for each, of the comp each component of the program. So some, there are a, um, there's a water advisory committee, a land advisory committee, a technical advisory, uh, advisory committee. There's an advisory committee for peer review and to, um, to study the, re the science and the research that we've been doing to make sure we're using the best available science and that's available. And there's also an adaptive management working group. So a, a whole system of, of um, committees and organizations that are able to focus on their component of the program, report up to the governance committee who makes the ultimate decision, and then gets the work done. Sorry, I needed a drink. Uh, let's see. Um, yes? All these groups you're mentioning, who, who funds it? Where funding? Yep. Uh, the federal government, so the Department of Interior, as well as the states themselves. So the entire program back in 2005 
was estimated to cost $320 million. About half of that came from federal dollars. About 60,000 of it, I think, came from uh, states. And then the remainder kind of came in cash in lieu in terms of water and land that they could provide to the program. So, yep, yep. So the, the um, program has three main components, a water component, a land component, and an adaptive management component. And these are all first increment objectives that I'll talk about again to get back to that 2019 date. The, first, uh, uh, the water objective for the first increment is to increase flows in the associated habitat reach by 130,000 to 150,000 acre feet on an annual average basis. Okay, what, what does that mean? It's, you know, it's kind of a volume of water through an area which would take a rate, a flow rate, and, um, and it gets more complicated than that because it's not actually increasing the flow. It's reducing, reducing the shortages to target flows. I love saying that because it confuses everybody. What that is is the U.S. Forest, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had determined appropriate target flows for different times based on species needs as well as how the river would could uh, would be impacted to those flows. So the Fish and Wildlife Service developed target flows, which are actual rates of flow throughout the year based on wet, dry, or average, average um, hydrologic conditions. So we try to meet those target fl flows through releases from our environmental accounts, or if we're lucky, if the water's just flowing in the river as it should be. So when I say 150,000 or 130,000 to 150,000, if the, if the river was flowing at 1,000 CFS, and the target flow for that day was at 3,000 CFS. There's a shortage of 2,000 CFS. So we're trying to reduce that shortage by 130,000 to 150,000 acre feet per year. So it's, it's a lot easier just to say it's a, it's, we're trying to get this much water. But that's the, that's the official technical term, and it's used for management reasons. Uh, in addition to the target flows, we have pulse flows. So these are large flows that we will release from the environmental accounts in the reservoirs in order to mimic a, a high flow, typical of a snowmelt-driven um, basin, to mimic a natural flow regime where you get a high peak in the spring. So these can be anywhere from five to 8,000 CFS, um, maybe for three days long, and every couple of years we'll do this to kind of move water through the system, push sediment around, create sandbars, remove vegetation, um, see how that helps. Let's let the river be a river and see, see what we can do there. Uh, and just um, to give you a sense of what that means to this area, because there are farmers, there's irrigation ditches, there's choke points that you need to be aware of. You can't just Turn on, this, turn on a switch and just let that much water go. Uh, we do communicate with local landowners in the public power companies and the irrigation ditch, ditch, districts so that they're aware of what's going on. And uh, just for reference, last May when we had the big floods that occurred on the eastern plains and into Merton, Nebraska, the pulse flows that we have are five to 8,000 CFS. 
at Grand Island, uh, the flow was at 16,000 CFS, and that hit that several days. So it was a lot of water that was coming through um, this reach last year. And we're still trying to gather data and kind of figure out, well, what does that do? You know, we were pretty excited about that just in terms of the hydrology, and we got lucky enough to be there when it happened. So that uh, let's get into the water projects themselves. So under that 2006 program document, I identified three uh, individual water projects that each of the states contributed. So your question about the money, some of that money came in water, and these are the projects that the, each of the states brought. So the environmental account in Lake McConaughey that's operated by the Fish and Wildlife Service, they're able to request that water during relevant times in order to meet those target goals of, of stream flow at different times. So they can ask the operators of McConaughey to turn on, um, to open the head gate, and they can get their water. Uh, another one of the water projects is up in Pathfinder Reservoir. So um, they had talked with the operators there, and sediment due to the dam being there, sediment was impounded. They were able to dredge the sediment out and actually recapture some lost storage space, which was made available to the program so that we have now a pool of water in Pathfinder Reservoir that we can use as our in environmental account that we can release again, push through the system to meet those target flows. Colorado's contribution is the Tamarack One project. It's a recharge project, and it's another one of those kind of you have to slow down and think about it projects. Um, it's it essentially is a way to retime river water, put it on the land, so it's allowed to seep through the soil into the alluvial aquifer and hit the river at a, another place. So it's kind of like a, a slow-moving reservoir. I, I think of it as. Um, the alluvial aquifer it really just follows the path of the and this is the this is the I don't know if I'm supposed to talk into this or Ogallala is everywhere oh. yeah yeah that's that's the biggie yep this I believe is just the the watersheds so the basin delineation so yep Colorado River would be heading this way yeah and so the alluvial aquifer really is just going to follow the path of the river Yep. Um, so the recharge project, I, I'm glad that you brought up the Ogallala Aquifer because that's not part of this project. This project is a recharge facility that uses alluvial aquifer water, so pumping water that is tributary to the South Platte River. So we'll pump it either through wells or we will divert it either from, um, from surface water diversions, place it on the land, allow it to, in a, what we call a recharge facility or a pit. And it's really just a way to kind of put it on the land, land let it sit, seep back into the soil, eventually reach the alluvial aquifer and contribute to stream flow more downstream. So how it benefits the program is that if at times during excess to target flows, we make a diversion. So we're not impacting the stream flow downstream. We really couldn't do that, take water out when we're 
already not hitting that target flow to increase it later. So we only divert during times of excess to those target flows, put it on the land, it seeps, we, we know the timing of how long it'll take and where about it should return, increases the stream flow, and hopefully that's during times of shortage to the target flows in order to increase stream flow. So it's, it's kind of a, of, a, of a little bit of a different concept but it's one that we're really grasping. We actually have a broad scale recharge program that we've, we've um, started just recently where we're trying to do that more on program lands that are within the associated habitat reach. So is that the no, we have others as well. So uh, there is a canal that is used um, by the Central Nebraska Public Irrigation, Public Power and Irrigation District. And we put a check dam in at the bottom of the canal. And this is a huge canal. We put a check dam in at the bottom to increase the, the, the surface water elevation, which increases the wetted perimeter, so to speak. And that increases the amount of water that can seep from it. And we take credit for the seepage which hits the river during times of shortage to the target flows. So it's all, it's all smoke and mirrors, but... actually putting on more than the agronomic amounts that will recharge. Yes, yeah. So there's infiltration rates are taken into consideration, so it's not just flowing over the river or flooding out a neighbor's land or anything like that. Yeah. Do you end up with issues around the we we haven't really um, dealt with water quality issues uh, with as far as um, operate farm operations there because our our goals are to I think either the the guys that negotiated this deal are really smart or, or a little bit shifty, but they, they the, the program goals are to increase a habitat for the endangered species, threatened endangered species. It's not necessarily to increase the numbers of, so it's really just a, hey, go out, do what you can to improve the habitat, and hopefully these, these uh, the ecology will take over. So we haven't got into water quality um, as much. Let's see. So I believe those were the three projects. So is there any other questions on the recharge issue or just want to let that one go? Um, in addition to those three projects, I touched on there's a, a canal recharge project that we have. There's also a, a re-regulating reservoir, which is called J2 re-regulating reservoir, which is an off-channel reservoir that we could use to divert water, retime it so that we can use it during times of um, shortages to target flow. So a lot of the water plan is really just to manipulate the water delivery and water supplies so that we can get credit for it when we need it in the program, which when, is when we feel like it's going to do the best to create habitat. So um, it's not just like a big slug of water. It's, a, it's been a lot of science and a lot of work done to develop a way to get it so that it's going to do the most bang for the buck. What kind of research did you guys do to develop that water That is um, it's classified. No, okay. That is something, that was the very first question that I asked when I started with Headwaters, is where do these target flows come from? Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service developed them, and I think that, I, I don't know the answer. And what I do know is that they're, they took into account the amount of water that the 
species, and I believe that would be the pallid sturgeon. When I read that, it just says species. It says so. I'm assuming that would be the fish because the birds are another kind of, a, of an animal, I guess. And um, and there's also just um, in terms of how much water typically would run through the system. So about 8,000 cfs is bank full in most places, and so you know maybe they kind of backed it off from there and looked at the hydrograph, the typical flow throughout the year, and said, well, you know, if this is where it peaks, typically why don't we try and put a target there? And maybe on a dry year, usually an average dry year would peak lower than that. Maybe we should put the target there. So I think it's, um, I, I don't have a, a definitive answer on it, but I'd, I'd like to. But I just, I, I haven't done the research myself to have that. So all of this is overseen by the Water Advisory Committee, as I said, which has representatives from all of the program participants. Um, so I think everybody's got a voice in the, in the program, including the power companies, the irrigation districts, um, environmental groups. So I think it's really is a, it is a collaborative way, and I think it's an appropriate way to, to um, manage the, the limited supplies that we've got. The next component of the program is the land component, and this is to protect, restore, and maintain 10,000 acres of critical habitat within, well, I should say 10,000 acres of habitat in the associated habitat reach. That's the first increment goal is at 10,000 acres, and we do, we, we, we already have 11,000 acres, so we're, we're well on our way there. The uh, end goal would be 29,000 acres, so this would be land purchased outright through the program and held by a separate entity or land that we receive through conservation easements or other agreements with, with local landowners. Um, what we will do with the land depends on where it is um, and also what type of agreement we have. It could be corn ground that we will um, turn into a wet meadow, which would be whooping crane habitat, or it could be a riparian area that we could turn into wetland, or maybe we just leave it alone and we just protect it. So um, it's a um, the land advisory committee takes all of that into consideration when they're looking for new land and and then what to do with the land. So it's um, I think it's really um, it, I think that it's really working well. It's been well received in the area. We we only work on a willing buyer, willing seller basis, so that um, we don't have power of eminent domain. We're not the government coming into your backyard and looking for your land. So. Um, and you know we've we've purchased land outright, but we also have a lot of conservation easements. The land that some of the land that we do own is managed by Nebraska Parks and Game to um, and is open access to for hunting, fishing, hiking, bird watching. So it's um, there's parking areas. It's it's really and it's well well organized so that you know where to go and when you can go. So it's uh I think it's really it's been well received in in the local community and. Um, so I think we've done a good job there. I think um, also the um, so yes, yeah, so the property that we that we acquire is held by a separate entity. So it's a, there's a land interest holding entity that holds the the land and feed simple title. So that the program is separate from the owners of the land still. So we're not managing land that we own. So it's uh, it's another kind of. Um, safeguard and we don't we still pay taxes on all those lands so that we don't shift the tax burden onto our neighbors uh, we're still 
and in some instances we may not have to if it's a federal federal agency I'm not sure how that works but we still pay taxes on it when maybe we wouldn't have to so this that is the land component really quickly and I'm doing okay on time I didn't really look okay okay um, and lastly, there is the adaptive management plan. So the objectives of the adaptive management plan are the same of the program, to increase migration habitat for the whooping cranes, to increase nesting areas for the terns and the plovers, to limit the likelihood of, of listing additional species as threatened and endangered, and also to um, test the assumption that the work that we're doing in the associated habitat reach will not negatively impact the pallid sturgeon habitat downstream. A couple of uh, examples of the uh, adaptive management work that we're doing is sediment augmentation. What is sediment augmentation? And that is actually physical means of reintroducing sediment back into the river at certain times and certain locations. So we, we actually have a dredge boat out there that's pumping water, maybe possibly over a diversion ditch and, and downstream so that it's picked up and moved downstream. And then we test how that, how those management actions work. Uh, we also have, um, we'll We'll mechanically remove vegetation. We'll go in and actually create large sandbars. We have off-channel sand uh, pits that we've made that are um, potential nesting habitats for the turns and plovers. So there's a lot that's happened with the adaptive management plan, which comes down to um, a process, uh, adaptive management with a process of assessing, monitoring, what is it, implementing, I have it here. Assessing design, implement, monitor, evaluate, adjust, and then assess again. So it's a cyclical process. And that's what I have. I have uh, a bunch of stuff over here. There is some, a couple of biennial reports, if you're interested. Yep. As well as just, uh, there's a book there. Please don't take that, but you're welcome to take everything else. Um, and then there's some information back here as well. Um, and my last plug is if you haven't seen the Sandhill Crane migration in Nebraska, it's amazing. And it's uh, the largest migration in North America. I never knew about it until, until I started working on the program. But it's, uh, it's an amazing fight, sight to see and, and to hear as well. And there's almost a million Sandhill Cranes that go through the central Platte River Valley and, uh, in the spring and in the fall. And it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. So if you're in the neighborhood... Swing by, stop by. We have an office in Kearney, Nebraska as well. Thank you. All right. Time for questions and answers. So, Darren, you're not, you're not done yet, but we can get you another beer. You can or can't? We can. All right. I'll, t I'll, have, I'll have another beer. And I have a question. Okay. So, how long... What is the river run of this area? Is it just a green area that's a critical habitat, or is it the dark blue, which goes like from North Platte to yeah. somewhere else? Now, I, I did not make this map, but if I did, I would have included a legend which had what that blue area is. And the blue areas are the watershed, so the, the, the basin for the Central Platte River, dark blue. Oh, I guess right here, Central Platte River. South Platte, North Platte. So the the so the blue is only that. It, it's I would almost say it's not really that relevant to have on the map. 
but the green area is the area of interest. We had to delineate uh, a quantifiable area or identifiable area that we could quantify results. So that is the green area. That's the 90 miles that we refer to as the associated habitat reach. So 90, mi 90 river miles. <laughs> yeah, approximately. Less, um, so yeah, it's, um, it's 90 river miles and then associated buffer around that so that we, you know, we're able to purchase land outside of that. And so then that's where the crane habitat is primarily? Well, typically they will roost in, they'll, they'll roost in uh, cornfields as well. So cut cornfields and wet meadows, which is really, it's, it's not a wetland, but it's, there's no standing water. It's just, uh, it's um, hydrologically, I believe connected to the groundwater, but not without standing water. So, anyways, that's habitat as well. So, it's more—it's a flyway stopover for the whooping cranes and the sandhill cranes. And I mean, we—it's—it's a, it's a big deal if somebody sees a, a, a whooping crane, and we have guys that go up in Cessna airplanes and are actually looking for them all the time, flying right along the sandhills. They really like to be on that plane, but. Um, um, so it's a big deal to see a whooper, but it's more just that flyaway area along the river where they will come and roost. So that's that's the that's the reason for having that area as, as opposed to you know elsewhere in a corn, random cornfield. It's more attractive to them here for roosting, um, foraging. So where are the whooping cranes coming from, and where are they going to if this is just a stopover? The, yeah, so this this herd or uh, flock, not herd, is the called the buffalo herd, I believe, and they go from Texas up into Canada. So I, th I believe there's like a, a a national park or a wildlife area in Canada called Buffalo Refuge or something like that, and that's what gives them the name. Um, so yeah, it's a it's it's quite a distance. Yeah. Yep. So the program has their agenda for recovering these parts. How do they work in conjunction with water rights? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's that's a great question. I think, um, um, and one that was asked earlier as well, and one of the components of the program is to leave the water in the river. So I think that we're we're not apart from the water rights priority system in Nebraska but um, we are we're not diverting water so in Nebraska water rights I'm still a little fuzzy on but they're not administered water rights in, in Nebraska aren't administered like they are here in that every day in Colorado there's a call on the river and there's ditch riders that go out and they turn on head gates and they shut down head gates and they've got there's a water referee for God's sakes, you know. I mean, it's it's a big deal every single day out there. They've got more. They've got larger irrigation ditches, which cover a large area. So it's it's typically like everybody knows the Kearney Canal is diverting today, and and that's what's happening on the river. There's ways in which to pump water as well. Um, in Nebraska, it's again loosely regulated compared to Colorado. It's not. It's not wrong how they do it. I think they do it right because they 
don't spend a lot of time administering it because it just works. You, you know, people know when to divert and that it's a little bit more of a simple system. At least that's my rookie uh, understanding of it. But when it comes to the water rights, we don't have a big problem with um, the with diversions upstream. If they if they are calling and there is a diversion, then that's that. We we that's what happens for the day, and we don't have any say in it. We do work with the big diversion big diverters though, being irrigation districts and the and the power companies. So. Um, Yep. So the, um, for example, that J2 re-regulating reservoir. So part of a hydroelectric plant's operation creates a very unsteady flow in the river. Okay, we need power now. We don't need it now. We need, you know, make a diversion now, and then we're not going to take a diversion now. So it's it goes all over the place, and so that re-regulating reservoir could maybe flatten out that that stream flow as well as just make releases when we need it when maybe they don't so it's their water but we have an agreement with them to to do that and that's one of the proposed projects that's not operating right now but um but yeah the water rights uh, are in are interesting and i'm still getting ca- uh, caught up to speed on it if it was in colorado it'd be a big deal there's yeah, there's in-stream flow rights in Colorado. There, there's in-stream flow rights as well in Nebraska, not on this stretch of the river. Oh. Yes? During the headwater releases, um, is there consideration made of water temperature for the source depth? Um, yeah. Not that I know of. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, I mean, there's... I'm sure there's opportunity to take water from the base of the reservoir in addition to maybe through the spillway on the top, which, you know, if anybody's kayaked the Blue River below Green Mountain Dam is a big deal. If, they, if they're releasing from the bottom, it's cold, and if they are releasing from the spillway, it's not so bad. So um, I don't think there's those types of considerations though, in water quality and water temperature. Yeah? With regard to trying to regrade the river are they successful at all like knowing the flow is going to come and taking out root matter and hoping it all gets washed around because it seems like you could have a high flow and have no change yeah unless you really deal with the root matter yeah um we we do that's that's part of the adaptive management plan and we do mechanical means of removal of the root matter and the plants themselves and so we'll go in with you know, with the proper permits with a a bulldozer and, and pull out vegetation or disc it under and things like that and um, really work the river so that when the water is released or the water comes naturally it's able to do as much much more work than we're able to do so and that's a that's a big concern i i think um the amount of established vegetation because there's salt cedars there's willows there's i mean there's large forests that are there now within the historic river channel that are established, and to think that a high flow of 8,000 CFS for three days is going to do something is just not going to happen. So, it's a it's a daunting task, and and um, we're continually going through that adaptive management process in order to figure out the best ways to allocate water and resources, cost, so that we can do it right. What kind of input does he give on the chat field? What kind of input? Uh, nothing. 
Yeah, we didn't. Uh, there is an environmental account in the Chatfield reallocation project, and, and that's what you're referring to. Yeah. Right yeah. Right yeah. Yeah. And so, it, just for reference, this is a reservoir that is in South Denver. That they're increasing the capacity of the reservoir, similar to what they did in Lake McConaughey. They're increasing it about 21,000 acre feet, and within that reallocation of flood water, is that, that's the 21,000. They are there's an environmental pool of water there as well, which they can release to for downstream uses. Um, I'm pointing at that map, but I guess it's like here. Um, but no, we we don't we didn't get in on that project. Yeah, but there's you know there's. Uh, there's a water project. I don't. I shouldn't even mention it because I don't have enough information on it. But it's called the Narrows, which is down in, in, on the Eastern Plains as well. It was looked at in the 70s or 80s, and they put the kibosh on it for environmental reasons as well as I think um, design issues. But it was something that got brought up again last year. Well, what if we built a big reservoir in Eastern Colorado and? And um, maybe that could help with what's going on in Denver and municipal use and, you know, in the plains and transfer of irrigation water to municipal use. And so um, there's everyone's there's a million ideas. There's a million. There's an idea to move water from um, the Flaming Gorge Reservoir in a pipeline, Aaron Millions Project, which is I think it's not happening, but it's not happening. But they wanted to bring that all the way down to Denver and Colorado Springs. And, and that's a. Part of saying that the Colorado River, there's water available through the Colorado River Compact that we haven't used, and it's our right to use. So let's steal some of that water from the Green River, and so it, it's, uh, yeah. They start trucking in icebergs, and that's when uh, things are really crazy. Yeah. So the salt cedar tamarisk a big problem in the uh, critical habitat area. Um. Yes, yeah, in, in that they've encroached on the, in the river channel and, and reduced that critical habitat. The other issue there is the water usage. So salt cedar, tamarisk, they use, I don't have the numbers, but it's a lot of water. And you get a lot of trees in directly adjacent to the river, and you can see that on a daily basis. I know there's been studies where, you know, you can... You can determine the change in flow based on how many tamarisk trees are, are there aligning the riverbanks. So it's the problem is twofold in that it's it's reducing the ability to create that braided channel, as well as the the loss of water to the to the consumptive use of the plants. So are you trying to manage them in any particular way? Um, only what I mentioned, um, so in the adaptive management plan, that's one of the milestones that we identified is re, re, to um, remove vegetation either through mechanical means or through releases of these high flows. So it's, it's based on time of germination as well and locations and things like that. So um, it's, a, it's a problem, and it's one that I think we're still modifying the, some of those um, some of those um, decisions on because we don't have a good grip of how to do that because it is so established. But tamarisk, I've been told, is a bigger problem than we know, and that's just from people that have been involved in the program for a long time. And you know, people like to talk about it, and uh, it was before my time. But I've heard tamarisk is a, is a whole other thing. And whereas 
I don't see it in what I do daily, but from others that that tell me they know, they've they're aware of it. So, anything else? Yes. You know, there's um, oh, there's like 52 of them or something, and you know, one of them, one of of interest would be, one of the milestones was, well, I guess one of the components of the adaptive management plan was to see if we make releases of water that would reach this height or stage, does it create a sandbar to that height? And so we, we, we measured and we, you know, we, we would make releases and we would deter, we'd determine that, no, it doesn't. You know, it, it, when the water recedes, it doesn't leave a sandbar standing that high. So we've had to go back and we've actually closed that loop of the adaptive management process, which is assess, monitor, design, you know, design and all that. And we're back to square one with that, which I guess is a big deal in the adaptive management community. I don't ask me, but that's what I've been told. But um, so to be able to close that adaptive management loop and say, nope, that didn't work. We thought it might. Let's let's uh, look at one of the alternate hypotheses and determine what we can do now. So milestones like that, they're kind of individual and, and specific to different components of the program. Yes. Yep. Is there any discussion about how to how to change that? Yeah. That I think is a that is a whole other golden beer talks topic right there. I I, <laughs> I mean I look at look at Lake Powell and above the Grand Canyon. I mean it's that's something that they've tried to figure out what to do and I just don't I don't know what they can do. I mean. Especially it was it um, not the Hoover Dam, Lake Powell, and now the dam, Glen Canyon Dam. Yeah, and that's you know you're not just gonna like I've seen just throw water, throw the sediment over with a dredging boat and, and call it good. But um, I think that there's ways that you can um, you know move water through possibly a spillway. I don't know, dig it up and really make it murky and then shoot it through. But it's something that is a big problem and. I mean, I've, when I was in college, I read a book, and I don't have the exact numbers, but there was a scientist that claimed that the rotation of the earth has been affected because of the impoundment, the amount of sediment that has been impounded behind dams has actually changed the, the rotation of the earth and the distribution of weight, which has always stayed with me because I thought it was complete BS. But, you know, like, okay, if somebody's... Somebody said it. Maybe there's something there. And, and if nothing else, it is a it's it's something to think about. Well, because it is kind of counterintuitive to think that we raise the level, the height of the dam to get more water, but we don't take care of the impoundments of sediment underneath it. So are we really getting more water? Yeah. Right. No. That's yeah. Band aid type situation. Yeah. Well, and in this system. As in systems on the Colorado River, this is dependent upon that high sediment transport. And um, when you don't have it, you don't have the, yeah, you don't have that workhorse of sediment moving through the system. And you, what else are you going to do? 
are these reservoirs um, regulated by FERC? Yes. FERC licensing? Yeah. So I, I believe that the relicensing of the Kingsley Dam at Lake McConaughey, as well as the others, that was all part of that process. I used to work off of the Snake River, and when we were doing the licensing up there, we were having a lot of discussions around how we could get sediment flowing back into the river yeah. past the dams. Did you have anything really that, did you Huey's, figure it out? Huey's shipping it. And, no, it's by the time I left here, we didn't really have Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the age of big dams came, and that wasn't a consideration, and now we're stuck with it, so what do we do? But in my mind, we designed it, we can fix it. So, yeah. Thank you, everybody. I really appreciate it.